Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. Today's episode is coming to you on Monday, February 20th. That is President's Day here in the United States, depending on where you are listening from. And because of that, we are going to be taking a couple days off of today on Broadway. But have no fear, we will have episodes in the podcast feed for you both today, obviously, and tomorrow. They will be interviews. Today, I am talking to the always enjoyable iconic writer of both stage, screen, and music, as well as books, Rupert Holmes, who unfortunately did not sing my name to any of his famous tunes. However, he did do a little bit of singing in this episode, which I think you will want to listen to. But Rupert is here to talk about his new book, Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, Volume 1, which is being released officially on Tuesday, February 21st, but I was in a Barnes & Noble over the weekend and I saw it on the shelves already, which was pretty exciting. If I didn't already have a copy and have already read it, I would have bought it. The book tells the story of a fictional, or is it, conservatory that trains worthy individuals in the homicidal arts. Yes, let me say that again, homicidal arts. It actually follows three different students during their journeys to and through McMaster's as well as them trying to carry out their theses, which is the code name for murders, once they exit those ivy-covered hallowed halls. In addition to talking about the book, Rupert and I dive into why exactly he is drawn to writing so much about murder between the mystery of Edwin Drood, Curtains, Accomplice, Solitary Confinement, all of those shows are just what he's done on Broadway, let alone in books and other things elsewhere. He also talks about his plans for the series of books, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide. He actually broke some news here on the podcast, which is very exciting. And we actually recorded this episode on the day that we learned about the passing of Burt Bacharach. So Rupert shares his thoughts and personal experiences with the late great composer. Of course, in the show notes, I will have a link to where you can purchase Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide, Volume 1. Highly recommended, a fantastic and fun read. And I think you'll really enjoy it, especially after this interview. So with all of that out of the way, here is my conversation with the great Rupert Holmes. So Rupert, we don't really know each other. We did have a, a, a really lovely chat a few months ago, which included one of the, the honest highlights of my professional career. So <laughs> I feel fairly comfortable in saying in my little experience with you that you are or at least seem to be a pretty amiable person. But, and it comes with a but, as I read McMaster's Guide to Homicide, Murder Your Employer, I started to put it into context with the rest of your career. Obviously, this book involves murder. Um, Drood involves a murder. Accomplice involves a murder. <laughs> Curtains involves a murder. Is there something much more sinister <laughs> beneath the surface of the Rupert Holmes that the rest of the world gets to see? Is this jovial personality just a cover-up that you learned to employ at a mysterious college designed to train future murderers? What, what's going on here? <laughs> no more Mr. Nice Guy, huh? Yeah, you're exactly. suddenly did, You're saying, you know, for, for such a... Um, and, uh, you know, as you say, a uh, uh, reasonable fellow, um, I sure dwell on murder a lot, don't yeah, I? Yeah, you do. Um, um, uh, the, um, the, I, I think that um, people who write about murders tend to be, um, in my experience, very genial and gracious uh, people. <laughs> um, they channel uh, some of uh, what they might uh, feel in what, what I, 
I, th- I think that murder mysteries generally are a very civilized um, type of story. They respect uh, law and order. They say that the loss of a human life is a terrible thing, and the world will not be a good place to be in until the person who perpetrated that crime is caught and meets the appropriate uh, retribution. Um, they are Their heroes in most mysteries are people who are uh, insightful and capable of seeing things that are confusing to us, and yet they find order and a pattern in it, and they go do their very best to restore sanity, to bring the world back to being a, um, a safe place to live. So um, I, I don't think that my interest in murder mysteries it, it, uh, belies some kind of... Um, um, I, 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 I think, I think your impression of me is pretty much, um, um, as you have it thus far and pay no attention to that murderer behind the curtain there <laughs> in the corner of the room. I appreciate that. I will completely, uh, ignore him until he perhaps stabs me directly in the back. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you talk about murder mysteries as being generally about the fact that the death of somebody is bad for the world as a whole and there needs to be some retribution. That is kind of the antithesis of what the entire philosophy of the school (laughs) at the center of this book is about. This is about, for the most part, uh, you know, to borrow a term that has different connotations, I suppose, justifiable homicides and Mm -hmm. how to get away with them while still respecting the lives of people who do not deserve to die. So I guess my question is, what I found so interesting about this book and then kind of spinning it off to the rest of your career is how much of a world you had to build to tell this story, both in the fact that this is kind of its own encompassing society uh, that we get to dive into, but also in kind of altering that perspective of what a story about murder generally is in our society, rather than being about, you know, a Hercule Poirot um, or Miss Marple who has to go and figure out who did it. We are looking at it from the perspective of the people in person who plan to commit murders. And that's kind of a different deal than the traditional murder mysteries, like you mentioned. And and I wonder why that perspective was interesting, having done so many other murder specific stories that coming at it from a different angle um, appealed to you in, in creating this rather large, expansive universe. Well, um, I, I really probably should address two different parts of your question. Mm-hmm. Um, and do me a favor, and if I if I answer the first and have forgotten the second <laughs> about why I went about this particular angle on murder, um, uh, working in reverse of the usual mystery, yeah, um, remind me of we'll that again. Back. But yeah, yeah. but uh, it was fun to um, build an entire universe, the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts, this um, um, Poison Ivy League college. I love that. Um, this uh, the, uh, uh, someone called it a finishing school for finishing people off. Um, I think it may have been me that <laughs> yeah, called it that. That's um, yeah, um, it was a delight uh, to invent this entire campus in immense detail, and by the way, connecting up with our shared Broadway uh, interest. Um, the there are the. Um, interior illustrations for the novel and the end page uh, the end pages of the novel are drawn by Ana Luisos 
the wonderful uh, Broadway designer who designed the sets for my mystery musical Curtains that I wrote mm. with Candor Neb, and uh, for the revival, the roundabout revival of the mystery of Edwin Drood. So oh, I have a I have a Broadway collaborator um, on this novel, and uh, and she did a gorgeous job, including this elaborate map, very detailed. It's it's fantastic. I poured over it. it, it I I've got the, first the original um, kind of like galley that was still being edited with the pictures, but when I got the hardback, that was a wonderful surprise when I opened it. Yeah, she's done a, a great job, and it was fun. It was very much like when we were working on the sets for the mystery of Edwin Drood, where you know the mystery of Edwin Drood is my um, I don't know how to put it without I am the author composer lyricist orchestrator of the musical <laughs> so if anyone can say it's my musical yeah. although you have lots of collaborators it was mine and so when we did the revival uh we got to sit and talk about what drops might occur um especially for the finale of the show and and on this novel on murder your employer we were able to once again collaborate i laid out my own hideous map drawn i'm yeah. I, you know i still draw stick figures like I did when I was 12. I haven't improved any. I've never gone beyond that. But I did my crude version of it, and then she came back with all these elegant, refined versions of it. So that was a treat. And it took me, I put in several years on this novel, simply creating the universe of McMasters, because this is actually a series of books. The Murder Your Employer is volume one, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm already most of the way through volume two, which is Murder Your Mate. Um, that's the first time I've mentioned that in public. Wonderful. So uh, you have that's for you. That's an exclusive and, um, there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, people ask me what the third one is going to be, and I'm, I, I keep leaning towards murder those who were cruel to you during your adolescence. I, I think murder that, your bullies. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, just high school. Those you knew in high school. I think there's a big audience for that. Um, the reason I like doing murder your employer first. Uh, was because I thought that there were a lot of people who might just leave it on their desk at work just to scare <laughs> their boss, you know, um, just don't have to read it. Just leave it in in full view. So it was wonderful to create this universe. And 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 I love going there. It's a McMaster's is a um, luxurious place to be. Uh, it's dining hall has a secret three star rating from the Guide Michelin. And um, and it's a place I'd love to go on a retreat. Uh, the only difference is that um, if you go there, you're learning how to commit a sublime, elegant, perfect, hopefully murder. Um, hopeful, uh, hopefully a sublime. I got to conjugate yeah. that. Better. Yeah. Um, now, about the way we went at it. Um, the first thing is that, uh, um, yes, in most uh, murder mysteries, um, you are puzzling throughout the entire book who killed the victim. With Murder Your Employer, um, you learn very early on who the hopeful victims will be. Three, in this case, in this volume, three employers who, um, to quote uh, um, Coco from the Mikado, um, as someday... Um, uh, and someday it may happen that a victim must be found. I've got a little list. I've got a little list of society <laughs> offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed, who never would be missed. And and so these three employers that have to be uh, murdered um, 
fit in with the four rules of the McMaster's mm-hmm. um, school of homicide. Uh, and there are four questions that you must ask yourself about your potential victim, your target. Um, the first is, um, is this murder necessary? Um, uh, in other words, if there's if there's some other recourse you have to um, achieving the goal you want, surely murder is, you know, uh, an extreme thing. Uh, if you could, uh, if you covet your employer's job and he has a uh, an offspring that you might instead marry and get the job by, uh, um, you know, patronage um, and nepotism, well, go that route. Don't commit murder uh, because to do so would be, in this case, literally overkill. The <laughs> second question you have to, have to ask yourself, and these are called the four inquiries in Murder Your Employer mm-hmm. and in all McMaster's murders. And the second is, um, have you given your potential victim every chance to redeem themselves? Um, uh, be, and if you have, and they simply refuse to improve themselves, modify their behavior, stop being the horrible people that they are, hurting other people, ruining other people's lives, if they refuse to change, then, um, you know, when someone is so obnoxious uh, that you have to uh, do away with them, then that's, on their part, that's involuntary suicide. I like to think of it as that, (laughs) involuntary suicide. Um, The third question is, who will mourn this person's loss? Uh, Do not rush to hear for whom the bell tolls, but uh, pay attention to who might be heartbroken to hear that bell tolling. But if, if there is no one who will mourn them, and whose lives will be devastated by their loss, then uh, more power to you, uh, more power to you, particularly if you're committing an electrocution. Um, <laughs> and then finally, uh, there is, will the world be a better place with this person not being in it? And um, and every McMaster's graduate hopes that um, they can say that the world um, has been improved by their uh, victim's departure from it. So that's sort of by giving uh, all my characters these four very ethical um, questions, um, I sort of thought I could sneak my way and do an end run around "Thou shalt not kill." I, I thought, I thought maybe this can make you feel well. No, I've examined what I want to do, and I I can truthfully say all of these answers have been answered in the way that would lead me to think. This is, I can make a case for this. Only this one murder. You're not learning how to become a mass murderer. You're not learning how to become um, someone who murders for financial gain. You're not, you're not a spy. You're not going to do away with James Bond or, or uh, Ernest, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. You're just learning how to take this one person and given the fact that this person is really asking for it, give them what they're asking for. Um, so, um, Going at the story, though, knowing where the reader knows who the intended victim is, the, the, the suspense builds on the question of will our heroes succeed? Because as you, as you uh, know, there, it's not just one person at, at McMaster's that we follow. There's, mm-hmm. We focus specifically on three people, although there's tons of people, members of both the faculty and the student body at the school that we learn about. 
but we focus on three different people. And we're told from the outset by the dean of McMaster's, Dean Harbinger Harrow, dean of admissions and confessions, that um, that one of the three people that he's citing will not succeed. And so there is that concern of who is the one who will fail. The big challenge for me was to see if I could make three characters who would be mur murderers where you, the reader, would find yourself rooting for them, feeling mm -hmm. sympathetic for them, feeling that, that their gains were your triumphs and, and their setbacks caused you to be unhappy. The inverse of most um, adventure stories. Uh, you're trying to get, trying to make them so sympathetic uh, that you will root for them. And so far, the reaction has been that that's the case. Um, and the, the one wonderful thing about writing a will they do it instead of a who done it is that it's um, much more spoiler proof. No one, we, you know from the outset um, who the intended murderer is. So no one can ruin the book for you by saying, oh, I knew the doctor did it. Um, so it's only, it's more of an adventure story with mystery components. I think that answers not only answers the questions you asked me, but probably all questions that have ever been asked. Yeah, well, I mean, it, but it's a great way to look at the book because you're right. I, I I never thought of it as a murder mystery going in or after, at least after I read the first couple chapters of the introductions, because you're right. You know exactly what is going to come. And the fun of it is seeing how it unfolds and how especially the main central character, Cliff, gets to this point he's had quite a rocky road to get there but one of the things that i i think really kind of added to not only the fact that you are following people who are trying to do something that normally we look down upon is how you've incorporated humor into this story and i think anybody who's listened to you talk about it so far can understand kind of the the wit and it sometimes even puns that might be sprinkled in throughout how important is that to telling a story that might otherwise be dark to make sure that there is humor in it whether it is a pun or even just like you mentioned dean uh, the dean's name is like that's a funny word or a funny collection of words to read. And a lot of the faculty names are like that. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of alliteration in them as well that just make it an enjoyable thing to bounce around your head. Well, you know, if you look over the, the theatrical mysteries that I've written, um, and also by the way, uh, particularly my first novel where the truth lies, which, uh, was made into a movie with Colin Firth and Kevin Bacon. Um, humor plays a part in everything I do. Most of my mysteries on mm -hmm. stage have been, have been comedies. Uh, the Mystery of Edwin Drood is a musical comedy, more than most musicals are. Um, Accomplice uh, that opened, it was the first play at uh, the Richard Rogers Theater, and we had uh, two wonderful comedian, male comedians, uh, uh, Jason Alexander and Michael McKeon in the lead roles. They, these are great comic Icons, yeah. uh, talents. Yeah. Um, Solitary Confinement with Stacey Keach was actually a very funny play and had the audience in stitches in act two. Um, even when I, uh, Curtains, my God, David Hyde Pierce won the Tony Award Let's for do, Best yeah. Actor. Um, two of my two of my mystery leads, George Rose in The Mystery of Edwin Drood and David Hyde Pierce in uh, Curtains, um, both won Tonys for Best Actor in shows where they didn't do all that much singing, but there was an mm -hmm. awful lot of comedy for them to do. I've always found that comedy and suspense are a, a very good match. They go well together like... Like salt on a on a on a margarita or a 
um, a, a payday bar where you have to access the the sweet center by going through the salt. Um, there's a lot of tension in a thriller, and audiences sometimes, if you get them too overwrought, they will start to laugh at places you didn't mean for them to laugh. Um, there's one musical written by one of the greats of theater. It's one of his last works, and um, it was. Uh, they had. I'm not going to say the name of the work, but there was a. It was just unremitting misery for the whole show, and there was no comic character for. Look at the term, by the way, Matt. Comic relief mm-hmm. in the story for comic relief. It's almost a helpful ingredient. People need to occasionally laugh. When Woody Allen made the movie Interiors, it was his first serious movie. And he was so determined for people to take him seriously that he made a movie without a shred of anything funny being said or happening for the first half of the movie. And I sat there and watched and thought, this is unnatural. Even a serious filmmaker making a serious movie, the human experience has laughter in it. We we joke to get ourselves through uncomfortable or humiliating situations. We, we, we engage in bleak humor and dark humor. And uh, uh, Murder Your Employer right now, uh, just from the advanced readers, um, is rating one, two, three at Goodreads on dark humor, even though it's an adventure story, it's a mystery story, it's a kind of a fantasy story, but um, it's it's viewed as this dark humor, which I found, I inherited and picked up from, from a lot of British films of the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. certainly Kind Hearts and Coronets, uh, The Lavender Hill Mob, and by the way, um, a version of Kind Hearts and Coronets became the musical A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. So mm-hmm. um, so, so they go well together because an audience, if, they're go- if you're going to get your audience tense, it's really good to give them a couple of breaks where they can like go, ha, that's funny. And okay, let's move on with the story now. I think it, uh, as readers get towards the, la- the latter half of the book, yeah. uh, where, they, where our murderers leave the campus, which is such a dreamy, idyllic, almost otherworldly setting, and suddenly are thrust back into their own realities, one in Hollywood, one in an East Coast city, and one in the, in the Northumberland area of England. And they have, to, they have to suddenly not be talking about murder with people who all agree, classmates and teachers, who all agree that this is a good thing, but rather in the real world where there are, oh, things like police and uh, prosecutors. Um, and and suddenly some of the, it's not that the humor stops, but it becomes, um, this, this, as the stakes ratchet up, um, it becomes more suspenseful, more grim. A couple of the denouements are pretty powerful, I think, uh, in terms of, sorry, you shouldn't, appraise myself but i think it's there's there's strong stuff yeah um so um I, I but the majority of the book seems to have something amusing on virtually every page and that was my my goal yeah well it it certainly works in it and like you said it, it helps propel the story forward where it, you don't get down in uh, any of the nitty gritty of, of what is actually going on. It, it allows you to kind of absorb the story in a, in a pretty quick page turning, turning way. But hearing you talk about like your intention to, to add things, it, it makes me wonder, especially because you have all of these connections between your work 
writing for the stage and for the page. Is your process different when you write a book versus um, a play or I guess music as well is how you approach the actual doing of the thing different depending on the, the medium that you're working in? You know, I, Matt, uh, knowing uh, your your uh, podcast and knowing the things that uh, interest your listeners, I actually started to think that to myself for the first time about hmm. what is the difference between when I'm writing either the book or the book and lyrics or sometimes the book, lyrics, and music of a musical and when I'm writing a novel, especially one that also is humorous and, and murderous in its intent. Um, and it is a very different process. And every time I've changed the medium I work in, it's very exciting for me because I take I have a whole new set of skills that I have to acquire and other skills that I need to set aside. For years, I made recordings, not only my own record albums, but uh, with Barbara Streisand. Uh, and those recordings sound exactly the same today as they did when I made them back in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and then I suddenly got to be in theater, uh, working with Joe Papp at the New York Shakespeare Festival. And I knew just from my experience as a devoted audience member of musicals and, and plays, but also just from being in the trenches now working on a musical, that every performance was a new experience. And every audience is newly born at each performance. They're a completely different organism. You don't come to it. When a cast does not come to a play and start to put on the show thinking that the audience is the same audience it was yesterday. They have to learn about mm -hmm. that audience and their quirks and idiosyncrasies all over again. Um, and so... You know, there are things that I can do in a novel that are glorious to do, uh, such an opportunity that I simply cannot do as easily in a musical. Uh, it's a small thing like telling you, telling the reader what's going on in someone's mind. Mm -hmm. I, I can I can only allude to that. I can in a play. I can make someone say something that is, um, in some way revelatory, but um, but I can't tell their entire thought process to the audience. Same thing with TV. I wrote a TV series called Remember When. Mm -hmm. um, I did wrote 56 episodes of, of a period show that might have well been a, a stage uh, comedy. And um, and one day, as a to drive my producer crazy, I wrote a script. It wasn't meant to be the real script. I wrote the first couple of pages of a script, and I said... Uh, Mackie Bloom sits. It said Mackie Bloom is standing alone in the studio. He remembers his life as a boy, and thinks. <laughs> and I described all these memories, and the the producer saying, "And we just have a shot of him standing there. How how am I going to do? I guess it's all flashback. We have to do location shooting. So so the it's wonderful to um, be able to." Uh, tell the reader what is going on in certain people's minds. Um, Murder Your Employer has two different narrative narrator voices. There is the voice of the dean of the, the McMaster's Conservatory, uh, Dean Harbinger Harrow. And he has an intro to the book, which is definitely written in his the first person. But then he kind of slips into being the narrator. And you can detect his droll British humor in there from page to page. But every now and then, every couple of chapters, we go to a chapter 
by the lead student in this novel, in Murder Your Employer, Cliff Iverson. And he is under instructions to keep a journal, a personal journal of his ex uh, experiences, learning on the campus, and where that takes him. And so at that point, we switch from somebody who can tell you what's going on inside everyone else's minds to a first-person narrator who only knows what's going on inside his mind. So those are wonderful shifts of perspective that you can do in a novel that are harder to do in a musical. We have only really one glorious way in a musical of letting you know what's going on inside a, a character's mind beyond little tell telltale things they may say. And that is the, the soliloquy or the, uh, you know, the, the solo song, uh, My Boy Bill, uh, where suddenly a character is alone on a stage and they start to reveal tons of stuff about themselves to whom, well, they're not supposed to know the audience is there. <laughs> so I guess they're talking to themselves. But, but um, ever since To Be or Not To Be, um, we, we've relied on soliloquies both uh, uh, in prose and, uh, and in melody um, to let the audience inside someone's mind. But a, a musical of entirely of only soliloquies, I think, might start to sound a little like a pageant and not like a story. Well, I, I it's fascinating to, to think about being able to change your brain between these different mediums and continue to maintain some sort of connective tissue between them, like you talk about with whether it's the humor or whatever it is, but at, uh, it, it really is an impressive feat. But I do want to kind of just briefly switch away from your works because we we're talking on Thursday, February 9th. And I, I don't know if you've seen this news, but you might have. We learned today that the legendary Burt Bacharach has has passed away. And I think about the fact that there probably aren't many people better suited than you to kind of talk about what his legacy might be. Not that I, I don't know if you have any insight into his specific works, but having written pop music and show tunes and music for the screen, uh, I, I have to imagine that that is a pretty rare group of people to do it at the levels that, that you both have done it at. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on what made him so special in so many different mediums for so many different years for so many years. Yeah. Um, I just heard about his death um, an hour ago yeah. and I'm still trying to piece together um, all the things I feel about that and about his legacy. Um, I was very blessed, Matt, because I got to, when I was first like 18, 19 years old, I was trying to get into the music business. And the first chance I had to kind of um, do go to one address in New York City and be a part of music making was at Scepter Records, the record label of Dionne Warwick and uh, B.J. Thomas. and. Uh, Fantastically enough, uh, it was at 254 West 54th Street and um, uh, on the fourth floor. And there was Scepter Records Studio. And the first record I ever, the first song I ever wrote that went to the top 20 in Billboard when I was like in 20 or 21, um, I recorded at Scepter Records. And that was also a place where Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Um, made many of Dionne Warwick's classic songs for, all written by them. And they also worked at Bell Sound too, but they, they did, when they were doing an album, a lot of the recording would be done 
out of uh, Scepter Records or Track Studio, 254 West 54th. And, and with wonderful irony, when The Mystery of Edwin Drood was uh, revived on Broadway, it was at yeah. Studio 54, the same address, 254 West 54th Street. And whenever I sing at 54 below, I'm in the basement yeah. <laughs> of the place of the place where I started in the music business, um, God knows how many years ago. Um, so I was very in awe of Burt Bacharach, and I got to sometimes hear that the engineer and I were friends, and sometimes he would play me things that they were recording uh, before they were released. And I, and uh, the the first one of the first forty fives that I ever bought with my own money in high school was um, was Walk On By by Dionne Warwick, and it I I I heard it once on the radio. And I, I took whatever I had made from mowing lawns and bought the 45 and I played it and it seemed to change the climate in the room. Suddenly the room, it was a hot summer and I played the record and suddenly the room seemed air conditioned. It was, mm. it was so breezy and cool and, and the chords were so cool. And I was amazed. I was thrilled that, that a song, a composer, like Burt Bacharach, could bring chords into play, chord progressions into play, in a in a pop song, and I couldn't even figure out what he had done. And I would sit at the piano, try to make sense of of his chord progressions. They were marvelous, and they always went somewhere I didn't expect. And and I think we all we all kind of learn from that. I don't know where he got that. He he wasn't. It wasn't just that he used jazz chords or musical theater chords. There was just something about the way he pieced things together. And and he he used minor sevenths to those of your listeners who understand. He, he would use minor sevenths and minor ninths and 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 use a key do a key change on on the chorus so that all the chords sounded different because they were suddenly in a different context. They were they were not just so. You know, someone would say to me when I was like 18, oh, you really stole that? It sounds like you stole that from Backrack. And I'd say, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> um, he, one of his trademarks, and and I would have, I'd, I, I wish I could talk to, I, I talked a little to Hal David as one of the, you know, who yeah. wrote the lyrics to most of his songs. Hal David is one of the unsung heroes of all lyricists. Because he would have to, he was, I always think of Hal David's lyrics with Burt Bacharach as if Hal David is a, um, a rodeo rider with a bucking bronco he's trying to stay on. <laughs> because Burt Bacharach's songs, they didn't have normal, they didn't have normal um, time signatures. He would go into a bar of seven, eight and think nothing of it. He'd cut, he'd add a bar wherever he felt, you know. Um, so, so do you know the way to San Jose? Da, 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 da. He used to say, oh, I can do a musical aside. I'll just stick in a couple of extra bars. And, uh, and so very few of the songs were just four, four, every bar. And, and the melodies would just go wherever Backrack decided they ought to go to. Um, and and how David had to saddle up and make his words fit that, and it was a 
he did a great job of that because uh, it was, I think, function first and and genius second. Um, I, I just I think, you know, I, I what whenever you wear a tuxedo, the guy and you put on a tuxedo. Until you get to hit a mirror, you kind of think you've become Cary Grant for a little <laughs> while, you know. You just, until you walk in front of a mirror, I, um, you think you're pretty sophisticated. And Burt Bacharach made you, as as a songwriter, made you feel like you were a more sophisticated listener than you had thought you were when you were listening to, um, you know, "Glad All Over" by the Dave Clark Five. You have to understand there were a lot of records, great records being made that relied on one, four, five chords. And here comes Burt Bacharach, who, if there was a one, four, five progression in his song, he'd go out and shoot himself. Uh, it, he, he was giving you just, you just felt like you'd wandered into a very elegant penthouse apartment of music when you heard his work. And, um, and of course, some of the songs break your heart, the melodies and the lyrics. One less bell to answer. Oh, my God. What an incredible song. Um, and uh, and David, how David doing that as well. Uh, I, 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 I never fall in love again. Oh, geez. that's just amazing things. Well, and that and when you talk about the kind of the having to fit lyrics in and I'm not a music person, so you can tell me if I'm, I'm off on like the 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 bars and the measure and the meter and all of those things. But just the line like um, uh, so for at least until tomorrow, he's got three different like grammatical clauses in a what seven, six word sentence that has yep. to fit to that music, but it flows perfectly. So like the, the, the back and forth between those two adding complexity where a normal pop song or even musical theater song wouldn't be is, is one of the things that I always think about when I, when I, listen to their collaboration. So I, I, even though I might not understand all of the musical intricacies of it, like you do, I, I appreciate it and, and recognize it, even if I don't necessarily understand it. Yeah. I think that, um, as blessed as how David was to have that music, um, underscoring everything he wrote. Um, I think Bert Bacharach was very fortunate to have a really seasoned professional songwriter who was will a uh, lyricist who was willing to say, okay, it's your show. You're going to go rhythm. You're going to go meter wise. You're going to do things that most people couldn't, couldn't manage. I'll go along. If you're going to do uh, a bunch of, if you're going to go da, 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 da you know that's not i've grown accustomed to her face yeah um that's 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 a that's a that's an obstacle course for a lyricist and i think 90 percent of even the best lyricists that were around at that time would have shrugged and said i you're just doing you're doing this to be mean bert you're just trying to make my life hard uh but david just smiled and said i can i think i can i can wrangle that um, so I, um, I got to know how David, because he was president of ASCAP when I was, uh, part of a, um, East coast songwriters workshop that I helmed. And, uh, we, we talked about those challenges. So, um, I, I wish I could ask him some questions now. He, he predeceased, uh, uh, Bert, uh, but, uh, but she, um, uh, was just, 
the other thing is is that he was absolutely unique. He didn't remind you of anybody but Burt Bacharach. You couldn't find his Rogers and Hart influences. Uh, you couldn't find Leonard Bernstein in his work. You couldn't find Trini Lopez in his work. You couldn't find anybody. It was just that was a Burt Bacharach song. There were a couple of other songwriters at that time who could do a pretty darn good Burt Bacharach song, and you'd be stunned to find it wasn't. But but Bacharach had to do it first. Um, and oh gee, I had no idea that he was as old as he was. Hmm. Was he in his nineties, Matt? I think he was ninety-four. Yeah, I ju- I always thought he was like. A couple of years, eight, I thought he was like eight years old. He was the son of a, of a, I think a, a Hearst columnist, I think. Hmm. Um, uh, and he was always, uh, no, no, sorry, got it wrong, got the wrong person in mind. Sorry about that. That's right. He wasn't. Uh, but but um, ah, just such a loss. But what? But what? A body of work. Oh my! If you started to play a medley. Of all the songs that people have loved that he's written over the course of his lifetime, you're going to need f- five intermissions. I'm telling yeah. you right now. Yeah. Uh, I looked it up. He uh, he was the son of Mark Bertram Burt Bacharach, a well-known syndicated newspaper columnist. So whether oh, that was good. for Hearst or not, uh, I don't know, but your memory was correct. So, uh, so very good for you. Um, I will wrap it up here um, with two real quick questions. Uh, one about murder mysteries in general, and then one last one about murder your employer. Are there any? We all know the the kind of the the iconic go tos, whether that's uh, uh, Agatha Christie or Conan Doyle or even Alfred Hitchcock or things along those lines. But is there anything that you've been watching or reading lately in the murder mystery uh, genre that has either gotten you prepared to write this second book, or maybe? Or I don't know, maybe you avoid it while you're writing murder mysteries, but any any murder mystery type things that you have enjoyed lately that you can pass along for lovers of the genre? Um, well, there's an awful lot of streaming mm-hmm. murder shows, um, particularly on BritBox and yeah. somewhat some on Acorn as well. And um, um, I had a line in curtains. I may not be quoting it precisely, but uh, one of the actresses is talking about her British director. And she says, um, she says, murder is a very British thing, isn't it? It's kind of like a hobby for them. <laughs> and um, uh, the, the British do murder really well, perhaps because they are um, by, traditionally, I was born in England. So I was going to say, I was going to say you were born there. I thought, yeah. Yeah, I was born. I was born much to my surprise. Um, just outside Manchester, England. By, Man- but my Man- father was Manchester, Ameri- England, England. Yeah, of course. There you go. Yeah, already anticipating here by some yes. twenty years. <laughs> but uh, my dad was an American GI who met a British girl um, in in uh, and in um, Cheshire um, when he was stationed there during World War II. He married. They married, and I was born there. And um, so I I was brought up. I, we came over to the United States when I was three, and I always had dual citizenship. And as you can tell from my voice, I have no trace of, an, of a British accent. But I was brought up by my mother to think that most things British were superior to things American. And murder mysteries seemed to be one of them. The uh, American mysteries, as I was growing up, they were mainly about hard-boiled detectives and beating people up and, and taking a bullet and all like that. Whereas British movies, the British mysteries tended to happen at 
very elegant places with some very swell, swanky people. So um, uh, the British do it well, and I would recommend most of the BritBox series uh, to be the first couple of the first season of, of Midsummer Murders, especially the first episode of of Midsummer Murders is a a, a mystery gem and a, and a, a, a breathtaking um, twist uh, ending. Uh, and the atmosphere is gorgeous. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, in terms of preparing for writing Murder Your Employer, um, whenever I'm working on a show, unfortunately, I try to not see anything else in that genre while I'm doing it. Because I, I, I it can have a, if I see, it's a no lose, um, no, sorry, no win situation. Because if I go, if I encounter a book and it, I love it. I say, "Oh, why don't I have something like this in mind?" And mm -hmm. and suddenly I'll start to try to work something like that in, or I'll read and say, "How did this get published?" And then I'll get angry, and that distorts everything. So, um, in when I'm writing mysteries, unfortunately, um, I don't read mysteries, and I try not to eat, even to attend uh, um, thrillers. When I wrote my play Accomplice, um, I, actually, I was motivated to write it. <laughs> because I was in London and I went to see a thriller. I love a good thriller. And I saw it and it wasn't good. And I sat in the audience fuming. I'd just written The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And I watched this play that I didn't think was a very good thriller. And I thought, well, I can write as badly as this. If this gets, I can write this bad. And I went and wrote uh, something that I hope was better. It won an Edgar Award for for yeah. best play uh, for Accomplice. So, so yeah, I, I can only say that go go to the streaming TV and you're going to find a lot of engrossing um, uh, mysteries there. Yeah. Well, I will I will wrap it up. You have said that um, a murder your employer is the first in the McMaster's Guide to Homicide series. You are almost finished with volume two. And obviously, I'm assuming you will be mostly following new students in that one. But there are uh, undoubtedly, depending on whatever time period you set this one in, probably some legacy characters from the first book, especially the, the faculty who might pop up. Uh, I wonder, a lot of times we hear, you know, you hear the, the phrases like, all all politics is local or, or something like that. And, and a lot of times you hear people talking about even novels are in some ways memoirs. I wonder, are you in this book somewhere, we've already established that you might not actually have a murderous gene in you, but <laughs> but are you in the in in the book there somewhere? Are you are you a, a faculty member or even one of the students, perhaps uh, more so than others? I assume you're in all of the characters, but is there one that is more of a stand-in for you than others? So as people read it, they can place you in in your voice and your personality into a certain character. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm going to fess up now. Um, <laughs> The the main character, the main uh, male character, Cliff Iverson. Um, you're basically, if if you remember, he he's the book starts. I don't think I'm giving too much away here. The book no. starts uh, with him thinking he's committed a fantastically good murder, <laughs> and it turns out that he's completely inept, yeah. useless, and he's caught within 15 seconds of him congratulating himself on how well he's done. And it's only through the intervention of McMaster's that he's carted off to try to get some sense into his head about the good way to commit a murder. Well, that's me. <laughs> if, if I tried to commit a murder, I'd, I'd just turn and say, I can't do this. I'm just, I'm no good at it. I'm just, and, and most of his points of view 
Um, the difference between uh, Cliff and myself is that he is a, an aeronautic engineer and I yeah. am not a rocket scientist, <laughs> but uh, but he, he de definitely is a stand-in for me. And um, you will see the character of uh, Doria May. Um, mm -hmm. She bears a close resemblance to a character named Hilary Booth, who was the diva on Remember When. Yeah. And again, that's that's a kind of character I love. Uh, I love to create and be around. So, um, yeah, I'm. I'm in all of the characters, certainly the the um, erudite British uh, professor of um, of um, uh, Dean of Admissions and Confessions, Harbinger Harrow, is me at my most uh, unctuous and uh, and and uh, sly. But uh, yeah, I you want to find me in the book, just go with the lead character talks in the first person. That's me. Yeah, that works. I, I definitely could see some of the uh, the dean as well. But but Cliff, who, <laughs> like you said, he we kind of started talking about this and I was mostly talking about about him comes at murder from a, a fairly righteous perspective in one that isn't even necessarily for himself, at least not completely. He is mm -hmm. doing it in service of other people. So I figured if 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 you yourself was were going to commit murder, which for all intents and purposes, I don't believe that you have at this point, but maybe I wouldn't know. It would be it would be in in defending or at least protecting other people. So I'm glad to know that that was at least confirmed and not not one of the other more devious characters that Cliff comes in to, uh, to battle with during his time at McMaster's. But um, anyway, River, it is always a, a joy to talk to you and I appreciate your time. And I have loved this book. I got it. I mean, I think all the way back in November. So I, I spent um, a number of flights reading it and uh, was always sad to get off the plane because I mean, I had to put the book down. So mm. I, I appreciate it. And I'm already looking forward to volume two. I, I know you're still finishing it. Do you have a, release year in mind is that would that mean it would be out next year or the year after what is the the uh, thoughts on that i i think we we you know the dream would be for it to be a year from now mm -hmm. uh the murder your employer comes out february 21st officially comes out you've seen mm -hmm. it ahead of schedule and uh it would be wonderful to do it uh a year from now if not then you would definitely anticipate it as a christmas present Perfect. for all the other murderers that you know and love <laughs> that you wish to give gifts to. Yeah, absolutely. And before we started uh, recording, you mentioned that you're going to be out doing, I don't know, readings or signings or something in various places for the book in the coming weeks. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to sound like Bill Maher at the end of his show, you know, where he <laughs> reels off every every casino he's going to be at. But uh, yeah, I'm going to be um, I uh, what's my schedule here? I'm looking at it. I'm traveling a lot. I'm going to be going up to I have a first of all, I have a big virtual event. Uh, out of Barnes and Nobles called Midday Mystery. That's on the 22nd of, the, the, of February. And people can participate in that uh, just by registering for it. But then we start to get into uh, actually me showing up places. I'm, I'm in Boston on the 27th and 28th at the Harvard Bookstore and Wellesley Books the next day. I'm at uh, in LA for a, a big event at Barnes and Noble at the Grove on March 2nd. Fancy. Um, and then Portland uh, is a Powell's bookstore. I love Powell's. It's the biggest bookstore in the world. That's on March 6th. Uh, Scottsdale, where Poison ben, Pen, Poisoned Pen Bookstore is. It's a huge and incredible bookstore just outside of Phoenix. And then I'll be in Phoenix, actually, to see my play, uh, All Things Equal, which is currently 
uh, on just about to tour the United States about the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who never murdered anyone <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> that we know. Uh, yeah, that we know. <laughs> Uh, you'd, you'd mentioned the last time we talked that when it gets especially cold in New York, where you were at, you look for places where your shows are playing that are warmer. I'm in Florida. Is there any, any productions of, of Drood or curtains or anything down this way that'll bring you, uh, to the sunshine state anytime soon? As it happens, uh, I, I made sure that, um, that all things equal the life and, uh, trials of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, starts, uh, in about a week at uh, the Delray Beach Playhouse, which is a charming theater down there, just before we go to colder climbs. So, yeah, I'm going to try to head down there. As you correctly note, every time it gets dark and then cold in New York, I go to Google and type um, Edwin Drood, Florida. <laughs> And, and find whatever company is doing the show there. And I think, you know, I think they need me. They need yeah. me badly down there. You would you would think you might have access to a more complete list without having to go to Google. Like I would imagine, I don't know if it's MTI or whoever has the rights, might be able to get you that information a little bit more directly. But I guess Google works as well. They, they You know, you'd be surprised, Matt. They don't tell you. You learn yeah. about it after the fact. When I get my statements from, I'm no knock on them, but when I get my statements from MTI or Concord, which now owns half the world they own samuel they french and, yeah um uh, uh tams whitmark um R it's always after the fact and i'll look at the and i'll say wait this is where i went to college you didn't tell me did you know yeah. so i have to do my own searching i okay. do get the statements i do get the royalties but they don't give me an advance warning they, they, they if they're going to own half the world they should figure out a way to let you know those things ahead of time i think oh but absolutely and by the way per force half the world to perform only my work <laughs> I think that's fair. I don't know about you. It sounds fair to me. It sounds great. Uh, having seen many of your shows, I would be delighted to just see them over and over again, uh, especially if you can get productions with casts like you, you know, most recently that cast of Drood on Broadway, which was, I mean, uh, no pun intended, a murderer's row of talent. Oh, uh, that oh, would be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, just the, the people in the smaller roles were... Yeah. Are uh, all Broadway leads and, now? It's Andy amazing. Carl, Jesse Mueller, uh, oh. Betsy Wolf, who wasn't necessarily oh. in a small role, but then yeah. you throw in like Stephanie J. Block and Cheetah Rivera. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's yeah. an unbelievable group, which has only gotten better with time. So the casting of that one was headline making at the time, but has only gotten better in retrospect. So I I don't want to. I know I'm overstaying. My, no, no, I know no, our session is. I know our session is over, Doctor. But um, <laughs> let, let me add that on the original mystery of Edwin Drew. Some of the bit, uh, the the I was going to say bit players uh, using a movie term, but some of the ensemble. First of all, the dance captain of the mystery of Edwin Drood was a fellow named Rob Marshall. No, nothing ever happened to him. <laughs> I, unfortunately. I, I wish he had a career at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if he had tried Hollywood, he could have. Yeah. you know, maybe but, moved but, in directing like, or something. Out out of the ensemble were two uh, 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 an actress named Judy Kuhn. It was her first commercial work in yeah. New York. And she got the part out of an open call, which wow. no one ever does. And and Donna Murphy uh, basically invented a role for herself out of the ensemble that has become over the years a much bigger role. And whenever I visit a high school or college that's doing the show and they say, oh, I'm playing the character of Flo. I say, no, you're playing Donna Murphy, <laughs> who was not going to be in a musical and not have a, 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 a line to say. So um I, I've been so blessed to work with so many people at the top of their profession and these amazing people who've catapulted 
to to um, lead roles um, virtually overnight just from their own talent. Yeah, it it it's one of those shows that every time I see it, like you realize, and this is not to pat you on the back, but because uh, you know, I, I I think I've done that enough already. But like everything is just so well written that you can make a meal out of anything, and the way that the show is structured with kind of the British music hall style, like eating scenery and making a meal of things is the way that that show is should be done. Uh, and it just yeah. works so lovely and gives people the opportunity to do what they do best. So um, I will leave you on, on those plaudits and, and congratulations on everything that has happened with murder your employer and everything that I'm sure will happen. It is a fantastic read and I cannot wait to see all of the reviews for it. And then also to read the follow-up uh, hopefully in one year's time. That's great. Thank you for having me on Matt. It's always a joy. 